So actually, have you watched um, this, like you just said, Hello, My Lovelies in a way that reminds me a lot of Emmy, like this YouTube channel? I love her. I love her. Okay. Has anyone told you that you guys kind of look like each other? Really? She's yeah. She's so cute. Uh, is it? I think we are talking about the same person. She's on YouTube and she does like cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Emmy Made in Japan. Mm-hmm. I love her. I met you first and then I saw Emmy Made in Japan and I was like, wow, she reminds me of Mari. <laughs> oh, that is so flattering because I absolutely adore her. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, oh, she reminds me of you. It's just the way that you guys carry yourselves and it's very oh. calming and it feels oh, like Bob Ross. You. Yeah, I adore her. So that is such a huge compliment. Thank you. Ah, okay. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad it worked out. Okay. Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm Claire. And I'm Mari. And together we are the host of the Yellow Ranger Fan Club, a monthly culture podcast about being Asian, female, and dorky. Do, do. Okay. <laughs> do, 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 do. Oh. Okay, so we are recording right now, clearly, and it is the week of the election, and we literally just found out that this morning Biden has been declared uh, the next president of the United States of America Mm -hmm. with Kamala Harris as the first Asian Black female vice president. Super exciting. Yes, it has been called by the AP. That's the Associated Press. Mm-hmm. So, so it's as official as you can get, right? <laughs> well, it's pending, pretty, pretty official. pending, you know, all of the different state certifying the results, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. But for now, as, as of this time of recording, we have president elect Biden. Yes. Though there has been no um, concession speech. Yes. There has been no concession. Do you think Trump can do concession speeches? Like, is it within his abilities? I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's a sore winner. Yes. I can't imagine how sore of a loser he can be. <laughs> you know, losing a job is difficult. A lot of us have lost jobs in this time and economy, COVID. Mm-hmm. But this is the one time in which I am very happy about somebody losing their job. <laughs> I did see someone... Um talking on Twitter, I think, and they were saying that, oh, now he has the full COVID experience. He got COVID and now he lost his job. Oh, it's true. It's true. He infected all of his friends in an intimate family gathering of his closest 250 supporters. (sighs) Also, we have been, so it's November 7th today, Mm -hmm. and we have been breaking records across the U.S. as far as um, cases of COVID. Yes. So we're in that third wave. Uh, is it a third wave or is it just a continual increase of whatever it is? I think it also depends on location because yeah. like in, in the Seattle area where we are, um, we definitely had distinct waves. Whereas I think in other areas, it's either kind of gone unchecked or this is sort of their first wave. Yeah, for sure. I mean, That's just kind of like, even though now all the focus is on the election and the election results, like still keep in mind, we still have a pandemic. Yes. It's, we're not back to 2019 Christmas yet, you know? Wear your mask, wash your hands. (laughs) Wash your hands, 
put a mask on and make sure the mask is over your nose. It's not going to do anything if it's under your nose or just covering your mouth. Is, are you seeing that a lot? I am. Are you? Um, I haven't really been going. I'm high risk. And so like we've been not going anywhere, essentially. So I went to go pick up. Um, I went to go pick up pizza the other day. And one of the uh, people in the back who was like packing the pizza had the mask underneath his nose and it was just covering his mouth. And so I was like, ooh, do I eat this or not? <laughs> well, if you reheat it, it's probably okay. I, I was like, you know what? It's been like deep fried by oil and it was like really piping hot. And I was like, you know, I'll just, I'll have some vodka with this. <laughs> it's got to be at least what? 60% alcohol. <laughs> I mean, just basically drink Everclear. Why don't I? <laughs> but yeah, I was... I was just watching this and I was like, okay, everyone, the pandemic's not over. Just still stay safe. I know we're all itching to get together. It is the holiday season. So like this year we can't, and we won't see any family. So it's super hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, family and friends. I'm sorry. You're all dead to me this year. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't say that. That's bad karma. Um, Crap. I don't, is my wall made out of wood? I think the foundation counts. (laughs) Okay. If you don't have wood, you're supposed to be able to like knock out your skull. Oh, is that is that what it is? I didn't yeah. know that there was like a loophole to it. That's that's what I heard. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, as much as we celebrate Biden win, we're also really disappointed by the fact that like Prop 16 was rejected in California. Yes. <sighs> I mean, it it wasn't it it was kind of by a close margin, kind of, but. It is really upsetting because there seemed to be such a such a promise for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there was a precedent set in that, um, what was it, the one in Washington was also rejected. So Right. Yeah. But it's like, you kind of hope it passes in California and then it sets the stage again for round two, three, whatever, in Washington. But it doesn't mean that this is the end. You can still keep on fighting yes right um if you're hearing a hissing sound i apologize my furnace went on <laughs> i'm trying to hold back a burp but <laughs> uh it's okay i i think it's actually kind of a very comforting white noise kind of dig uh, it so we're gonna do the asmr podcast yes hello i don't have anything <laughs> crunchy to do asmr on <laughs> They always whisper and they all like, I don't know. There is a lot of whispering sounds. I don't know. I don't know how ASMR works. I don't either, really. What was I? Okay. Yeah. So on top of that disappointment, there are some pretty other exciting elections and results that came out, right? We got Marilyn Strickland, who um, will be representing uh, the Pacific Northwest in Congress. And she is the first ever Korean American woman to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Yay! And she is, uh, I think she's also black as well. So I think this is like the year of like black Asian <laughs> yeah, women. Yeah, so we're super excited about Kamala Harris, who yes. vice president, being the first uh, Asian American uh, black vice president and woman. It's like, it's like, wow, 
like a three and one, like all good Asians finding great deals. You get all the barriers like <laughs> slash with her. <laughs> so she's, she's amazing. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Oh yeah. Me too. Me too. I'm, I'm really excited to see where this goes, but also, you know, for, for progressives getting Trump out of the office, isn't like the only thing, right? There's still a lot of other, places to push. There's still a lot of places to continue championing for like social justice and criminal reforms, things like that. And so this isn't the end. It's, I don't want everyone to become complacent. This is just the beginning. Yeah. Because we might also see a lot of, um, depending on the direction the Senate goes, we might be seeing a lot of obstruction, of course. So there yeah. might be a bit of a lame duck term, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. depending on which way the Senate and Congress goes, because I think it's a little up in the air right now. Yeah. I mean, I think what's really exciting, though, is that Georgia is going through a runoff. So there is still a opportunity to flip the Senate. Is there? I think there might be. I think so. But man, speaking of Georgia, Stacey Abrams. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. She is a powerhouse. We stand a good female lead. Like... Wow, she is amazing. And also, I, I saw um, a post on Facebook. It's not just, you know, Stacey Abrams alone. It's all of the other incredible people that she works with. But, I mean, she has been tireless. Yes. But also, also, she is a romance novelist. That is right. Oh, my God. So, I was like, oh, that explains a lot. Because, like, a lot of romance novelists, they're super smart and they are really active and amazing. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Screw everyone who gives romance novel a bad name. Oh yeah. If you, um, if you look at like the uh, biographies of a lot of romance novelists, a ton of them are like ex lawyers and you know, they just have, they have a, a lot of really interesting backgrounds and they're all super smart and very, very uh, active. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, Especially, like, if you're writing historical romance, you got to do your research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't poo-poo the romance novels. Yeah. And, you know, all the romance novels now, I think there's a trend towards romance novel for the female, for the main character to be very self-assured, to be, like, it's a fantasy, right? Like, you want your female character to be self-assured, to be successful. And a lot of the people who write these romance novels are people who are very successful and mm-hmm. very driven in what they do. Mm-hmm. so yay all right anyways that was a lot of politics talk a lot of punditry as you well i don't know if it's punditry i i can't say that we are i'm definitely not no but there was a lot of uh p- political fan amateur fangirling actually i don't uh, how do we i don't want to dismiss our interest in politics but we're not punditry how do we say this <laughs> we're just opinionated voters right that was a lot of, of uh, opinionated uh, political opinions. Wait, opinionated political opinions. <laughs> Why? I can't talk. Why do I even host a podcast? <laughs> I, I understood what you're talking about. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Some political excitement. We're actually excited about the potential right now. It's true. It's true. The potential is great. And, you know, October, November has been very politically driven. We started thinking about Asian trailblazer in U.S. politics, right? Mm-hmm. So 
I'm telling the incredible story of Dalip Singh San, and you are talking about. I am talking about the first Asian American Pacific Islander elected to Congress as a delegate, Robert Wilcox, who was a native Hawaiian. Awesome. Okay. I can't wait to hear all about it. I'm actually really excited about it. So, <laughs> so who, who goes first? Well, Shall we go chronologically? So I'll go first and then you can go. Yeah, let's go chronological. Okay, because I will also discuss um, uh, those positions in Congress with voting rights and those that don't have it and sort of Ooh. explain that. Yeah, that's super important because okay. this is so exciting. Oh my God, yay. <laughs> so time. yeah, story time. Um, so I want to talk about the first AAPI elected to Congress, but we kind of have to discuss how and why some representatives have voting rights and others don't before we kind of get into that. So basically there are statutory representatives, quote unquote, um, and these statutory representatives give non-states a voice in Congress. So delegates represent territories that are potentially on the path to statehood. So today that includes the Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, and Washington, D.C. All of those territories have... Um, delegates in Congress currently. And after the Spanish-American War, territories that became part of the United States but were excluded from statehood consideration because of discrimination, um, they received the position of resident commissioner to represent them in Congress. So, so hang on. So there's delegates and resident commissioners. Correct. Okay. And what is the difference between them? So... Today, there is one resident commissioner in Congress, and that is the representative of Puerto Rico. Mm. And the difference between them is because um, after the Spanish-American War and Puerto Rico became a territory, uh, they basically said, we don't think that you'll ever become a state because you're not, quote unquote, American enough. And so you get a resident commissioner and you don't get a delegate because you're not on that track. Is that what happened to the Philippines? Yes. The Philippines, while it was under U.S. rule, had resident commissioners in Congress until their independence in 1946. So, okay. Statutory representatives, the delegates and resident commissioners, can do everything state representatives can do today except vote. So okay. today they can serve on committees and speak on the House floor, etc. Basically, mm -hmm. the function of the statutory representatives is to make Congress aware of territorial concerns and interests and perhaps influence some legislation. So they have a voice, but it's very limited, and that's kind of by design. Okay, that's the territories, like uh, the island of Mauritius, mm -hmm. Guam, not well, Puerto also, Rico, but like Puerto DC. Rico. Um, because they have a statutory okay. representative as well. It's just a resident commissioner, not a delegate. Okay, so there's there's not a functional difference between a residential commissioner Today, and a delegate. Correct. So in the past, um, delegates, and I believe residential commissioners, couldn't actually serve on committees. And I think they could still speak on the House floor, but um, they were sort of relegated to just trying to raise awareness of their particular territories for some reason it reminds me of like how i feel when i'm trying to present like a product improvement 
<laughs> to like an engineering product team and be like, here is what I think you should do. Oh my God. <laughs> How do I get on the planning committee? No, sorry. You can't be on the planning committee. It was formed three months ago. But I found the problem last month. Yeah, it's too late. Oh. How do I get onto the next one? We won't tell you. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it it seems a lot like that. <laughs> yeah, it feels it feels a lot like trying to get stuff fixed when you're not part of a product team. Anyways. Yes. I think I think that's a really good analogy. <laughs> okay, cool. So that's delegates and that's resident commissioners. And resident commissioners. Okay. The first delegate was James White, who represented the territory south of the River Ohio, which is really long, but it's better known today as the Southwest Territory. So he became their representative in 1794. Initially, the Southwest Territory was considered too small population-wise to warrant statehood, so that's why it was a territory, not a state. Okay, question. (laughs) The collective amount of people in those territories is it more or less than the state of Wyoming? Um, I think at the time, the Southwest Territory was less. It was... Oh, I can't exactly remember. Do you want me to look at that? I think I can look at it. Okay, so some elevator music, please. Okay. So, um, according to the Tennessee Encyclopedia, a newborn territory at its first level uh, was virtually a fiefdom for the governor. Okay, so according to the Tennessee Encyclopedia, the settlers achieved a voice in government when the population reached 5,000, a number that permitted them to elect the lower house of the General Assembly and nominate the members of the upper house for appointment by the president. The third and final progression was the step to statehood authorized when the population exceeded 60,000. Okay. Wow. So it's like 5,000 people in all of that group. Yeah. In And this is excluding like indigenous people and. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) So is that just counting? Like, is there 5,000 white land owning men? I suspect. (laughs) I suspect (laughs) that's the case. (laughs) Because remember, this is 1794. <laughs> true, it's true. Okay, yeah. 5,000 people where the people is considered white land owning men. Yeah, okay. So no children, no women, no people of color is considered in this 5,000. Correct. Awesome. Cool. Well, correct us if we're wrong. Yes, but that's what I believe based okay. on. I don't have evidence of that, but based on my understanding of history, (laughs) that's what I believe. Listeners, if you know the response to that, please DM us and tell us this because we would love to be pleasantly surprised. Yes. So are we ready to talk about our AAPI rock star? Yes. Let's talk about him. Okay. So the first AAPI person elected to Congress as a delegate was Robert Wilcox. He was a native Hawaiian who began representing the new territory of Hawaii on November 6, 1900. So 120 years ago. Yes. Almost to the day. Wow. (laughs) I didn't realize that. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. So he was born in the kingdom of Hawaii 
and he became he became the delegate as Hawaii transitioned into a U.S. territory. So, you know, after some people from the U.S. kind of overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy and took over the kingdom in a coup and a hostile takeover, and it's a huge, whole, sad story. And if that has a lot of ramifications for today and a lot of repercussions. So if you want to hear about the annexation of Hawaii, it should probably be its own episode and let us know. <laughs> let us know if you're interested in that. Because like when I went to Hawaii uh, on a vacation, they totally glossed over this at the Dole Plantation, by the way. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I think because Dole in particular um, was one of the people who pushed really hard and supported the hostile takeover. And yeah. So that's, that might be why. <laughs> yeah. Felt really weird going there because I really wanted to try Dole Whip. And then I was like, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Although I remember I went to um, the Dole pineapple plantation when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I went there with um, my grandmother and uh, my family is from Hawaii. And, um, and so as we were going through like the plantation um, areas, like where the plantation workers lived and things like that, my grandmother was like, Oh, this is how we made tofu. Oh, this is how we did this. Oh, this is how we did that. And the tour guy was just like, I'm just going to let you take it <laughs> from here. Just go, just go, just leave yeah. the tour. So- so yeah, she, the tour guide kind of like let us around, but then let my grandmother like tell us all about like her experiences and how everything worked in the plantation houses and everything. It was really fun. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to interview your grandmother. <laughs> um, that pineapple is delicious. Not going to lie. <laughs> so when my mom was a kid, well, I guess a teenager, she worked in um, one of the dull pineapple plants. And uh, so like, in one of the canning plants. Mm-hmm. And so she can slice a pineapple like nothing else. It's art. Okay. So, um, yes, the uh, hostile takeover of the kingdom of Hawaii. <laughs> Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> hooray. Hooray. Yeah. Not hooray. Okay. Hostile takeover of the kingdom of Hawaii is a huge story that has a, uh, a long history and um, is very, very in-depth and kind of complicated, actually. So if you want to know more, it probably deserves its own episode, at least one episode. Yes. And it would be an episode in which we talk about nothing else but that. Yes. So back to Robert Wilcox, our native Hawaiian delegate. So before he became a delegate, this is very interesting. (laughs) This guy (laughs) tried to stage a revolt to force the Hawaiian king, Kalakaua, to take back power from the white landowners, you know, because this was in the process of um, the kingdom of Hawaii being taken over. And uh, he actually supported um, later on annexation because he thought Queen Liliokalani, who was um, Kalakaua's successor, also wasn't standing up to the white landowners to his satisfaction. Uh, Robert Wilcox's satisfaction. Then, after Queen Liliokalani was actually overthrown, um, Robert Wilcox 
staged another revolt to restore the Hawaiian monarchy because things were not going the way he thought they were going to go. <laughs> and um, so Robert Wilcox kind of changed his mind in politics a little bit, but what it boils down to is that his goal was always to empower native Hawaiians and make sure that they had um, as much autonomy and independence as possible. But as a result of his activities, which was a couple of revolts, uh, <laughs> sometimes including a military, you know, things like that. Um, he ended up standing trial for treason, was thrown in jail and even sentenced to death. <laughs> Wait, hang on. So was he sentenced to for treason by the U.S. government or Hawaii? Um, he was, he stood trial for treason in the kingdom of Hawaii. And then he was thrown in jail. I'm not sure where in the um, process of annexation that took place exactly, but he was sentenced to death after um, the monarchy was overthrown. Okay. Okay. Which I don't think, I think it was, after the overthrow of the monarchy, but before um, Hawaii became a territory. Okay. So it was in this weird period of time where I believe there was a president dole. <laughs> that's really awkward. Yeah. King Pineapple. I feel like that's like an anime character somewhere. <laughs> okay. So it, it basically went like this, right? Just to recap. So there was the Hawaiian king, Kalakaua. Kalakaua. And so Wilcox tried to overthrow him because he was like... Well, he didn't try to overthrow King Kalakaua. He tried to, um, with military force, well, the military force against King Kalakaua Ah, to try to convince King Kalakaua to um, not concede so much power to the white landowners and to take the power back and authority back from the white landowners. And um, when... Queen Lila Kalani took over, Mm -hmm. he was disappointed that she wasn't standing up to the white owners and so supported annexation. Yes. And when she was overthrown, he basically was like, revolution! To to restore Queen Lila Kalani to the throne. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it seems like he was kind of changing his mind, but he just wanted to give... um, more uh, power and authority and independence to the native Hawaiians is what it all comes down to. When all the dust settled, right? Is that, well, or is that like he he stood trial for treason when he tried to uh, force King Kalakaua to take back power. Ah, Okay. But he was pardoned. He was thrown in jail um, when he tried to uh, get annexation to go through because Queen Lilio Kalani wasn't standing up to the white landowners enough for his opinions. So he was thrown in jail um, for trying to <laughs> incite a little bit of revolution there. And then um, when he tried to uh, restore Queen Lilio Kalani to the throne, he was sentenced to death. Ah, okay. Yes. Okay. Cool. Um, eventually, he was pardoned by all the various people in power at the time. All right. I guess he must have been very popular like he was supported by the populace yes very much so so okay that's that's sort of his history and where he came from (laughs) he was definitely uh proactive let's put it that way he was a revolutionary Mm -hmm. 
So after the annexation of Hawaii, he ended up changing tactics again and decided to try to do things the political way. And so that's when Robert Wilcox became a delegate for Congress. Um, He was elected to become a delegate for Congress. And as a delegate, he championed Hawaiian independence and uh, various bills that would benefit Native Hawaiians. What are some of those bills? So in Congress, he tried to... um, So in Congress, he focused on trying to make land distribution more equal and allow for more homesteading because um, land was sort of concentrated with white landowners. And so he um, he wanted uh, Native Hawaiians to be able to homestead and get land and things like that. Um, unfortunately, he had very little power. Mm-hmm. And his biggest contribution in Congress was helping to figure out how to convert Hawaii from their silver currency, like the Kingdom of Hawaii's currency, mm-hmm. to American dollars. Okay. And uh, what happened to all the silver? You know, I'm not sure. Um, I believe what happened was they had an exchange rate or something. And the American government ended up eating some of the extra cost in the exchange or something like that. And uh, so... Robert Wilcox, even though he didn't really have a whole lot of power in Congress because he was a delegate, he didn't have a vote at the time. He couldn't sit on any committees. Um, and, uh, he wasn't white. (laughs) And so with the other, um, other delegates, any other delegates who weren't white, they were all sort of, um, pushed to the side and, you know, not really listened to, but he did actually end up having from his position as delegate, he had more power at home in Hawaii and could help those governing the islands understand how to work better with DC and the American government. Although he did have one bill pass, which was, yeah, he had one bill that he wrote pass, which is HR 13076. And basically it dealt with how long the Hawaiian territorial senators terms were. But at, not the U.S. senators, not the Correct. senators for Hawaii, but like the state senators within Hawaii. Well, territorial, because they weren't a state yet. Territorial senators. Yes. Okay. I didn't know that that was governed by the federal government. I thought that would be within the state constitution. Um, Well, because it wasn't a state, I think it's a little bit different. Mm. Again, yes, I keep on saying state because Hawaii is now a state, but territorial constitution at the time. But it didn't become a state until I think the 50s. Yes. Now that I'm thinking about it, the U.S. flag changed in the 50s, didn't it? Mm-hmm, because of Hawaii and Alaska becoming states, right? That's so crazy, sauce. Like, I didn't even, I didn't even stop and think about that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it could change again if, say, Washington D.C. became a state or uh, Puerto Rico became a state. That was a really exciting story about Wilcox, though. Yeah, he's he's such a he's such a colorful character. 
He really is. And um, unfortunately, he didn't have a very long political career because he passed away pretty soon after. After becoming a delegate. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's that's really sad. Who? So who became a delegate after him? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up. Was it? Well, well, we can look it up right now. Is it another person of color or was it? From Hawaii, I suspect it is. He was succeeded by Jonah Kuhio Kala... I can't even say that. Kala Niana Ole. He was the prince of Hawaii. Mm. And became a resident and delegation. And as such, is the only person ever elected to that body who had been born into royalty. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Anyways. Yeah. And I mean, if you go to Hawaii, if you go to on Oahu, there's Iolani Palace, which is the only royal palace in the United States. I went there. It was glorious. <sighs> it was, it was actually really sad because they lost a lot of the, um, uh, the furniture and antiques and relics and things that were in there, mm-hmm. um, they were all sold off after the annexation. And so um, they did a ton of work to track a lot of that stuff down and purchase it and buy it back and get it back into the palace. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's still like, there's still constant renovation going on in there. I'm sure. Like mm-hmm. when I went to visit it, it was, I, I don't recall if there was renovation being done to the main areas, but there was definitely like a wing that they were working on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are we ready to talk about my side of the story? I think so. Oh, so yes, because, so that was Robert Wilcox and you are actually going to talk about the first AAPI person elected to Congress who had full voting rights. Yes. Yes. So that's a huge distinction, right? Yes. Yes. Because he was from a state, not a territory. That's true. So um, I am going to talk about Dalip Singh Son, which I just said a lot of my research came from the article Triumph and Tragedy of Dalip Sand, written in 1992 by Tom Patterson, the U.S. House of Representative Archives and the South Asian American Digital Archives. I also went and read part of his book, Congressman from India. So I'll be pulling a lot of quotes from there. So while I was researching him, I was like, why haven't we learned about him in school? Like, I went to school in California, and I can't recall anyone mentioning him. Because he represented California. Right. So yeah, he uh, was a county in California. He represented Southern California. Um, so granted I was in Northern California, but you would have thought that like Californian history class, they would have mentioned him. But of course I could also have had been asleep during that time. So. <laughs> Cause he was cool. He was legit cool. Okay. Anyways, whether or not they talked about him, it was clearly not enough. Cause I don't recall this. <laughs> Actually, I should probably ask some of my classmates if they re- remember this. <laughs> Yeah, like, I feel like this is knowledge you should have learned in, like, elementary school, because it would be, like, super cool. Anyways. People didn't learn about the annexation of Hawaii, right, either. That's that's true. So, Dalip Singh Son represented the 29th District of California 
from 1957 to 1963. So what the 29th district is, is it encompasses, it's in Southern California, the San Fernando Valley and near Los Angeles. So it's a kind of farming community. At the time he was elected, it was going through Imperial and Riverside counties. So eh, I don't have any sort of cool knowledge of what they include other than maybe you see Riverside. (laughs) But he broke many, many barriers with his election. So he was the first Asian American, the first Indian American, and the first member of a non-Abrahamic faith to be elected to U.S. Congress with voting rights. So he was Sikh. So I'm going to just give a little bit background about him. He was born September 20th, 1899 in, uh, I'm going to try to say this, in Chajalwadi, Chajalwadi, Punjab in India. Um, He emigrated to the U.S. through Ellis Island to study agriculture at UC Berkeley. And however, he ended up with a master's and PhD in mathematics when he was in school in India, he was also a math major. So he got his PhD in mathematics in 1924. So like way to overachieve. <laughs> By the way, um, since he was born in September, that makes him a Virgo. <laughs> Anyways. After- See, that's important. It is very important. It is very, very important. You know, after he graduated with his PhD in mathematics, he actually stayed in the U.S. and worked in agriculture because opportunities were pretty limited at the time to Indian immigrants. And but why did he stay in the U.S.? Because he was he was supposed to go back home, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So he was supposed to say go back home. But um, I actually had a really great line by him. But basically, he like fell in love with the culture of the U.S. and like. If I'm reading his his uh, memoir, he almost seemed like a U.S. fanboy. Oh, he was like super sweet. I did a little bit of research on him too because when I was researching Robert Wilcox, uh huh, and I think he was Dalip Singh Sand um, was also very outspoken against uh, the, the British the imp- British rule in India. Right? Yes, he was very so- he was over he was very um, against that. He was a huge Gandhi supporter. And um, I'll talk a little bit about that. Oh, okay. But yeah, so it's actually really interesting because he wrote in his book, I assured my family that I would study in the US, United States for at least two and not more than three years and would then return home to supposedly help his family like start a canning, a mango canning business in India, which I guess never happened because he just (laughs) stayed in the US. So what was actually really interesting was that he got two, he got offers from two universities in India to um, go back and teach. But, Hmm. but by that time he was like, he was like, I want to stay in America. The U S is amazing. And so he got a job as a foreman on um, in working in agriculture and then later somehow saved up enough money and started his own ventures growing lettuce. And he was a biz- local business businessman and like expanded it into a couple of different other varieties. But at mm-hmm. one point um, with depression, he actually like because of the economic downturn, he ended up in a bunch of debt. But that's not important to the story right now. And that was like 1929, 1930, yeah. the Great Depression. Okay. Yeah. So he actually wrote a book called My Mother India. And in that book, he 
So there was another book that came out a little bit before called Mother India, and it painted India as a very like backward society, things like that. And so as a rebuttal, um, he wrote My Mother India, which spoke out against the British rule of India and the British colonialization of India. And he was really going for India like advocating for Indian independence, really advocating for democracy in India and supporting Gandhi. And because of that, he started going, he started having a lot of book tours kind of and speaking engagements um, and went around the communities trying to drum up support. So this is actually really sweet. It's because of this book in a weird way that he kind of met his wife, who is like, it's so sweet how he refers to her. Um, like he was like my like my dearest Marion. He married Marion Cosa in 1928 because in his book, in his preface, he writes, I received my inner joys and support from a devoted wife who knew how to chide and guide. 30 years ago, she had married me not for money, position or prospect. For these, I had none. Kipling said, East is East and West and West and never the twain shall meet. Clearly, he was wrong for a son from the East met a Cosa from the West. Oh, I know. It's like such a sweet, eloquent statement. Mm-hmm. I'm like tearing up reading it. <laughs> but what was really... So they really married for love. Yes. Yeah. They truly married for love. And what was also really crazy is like... Sorry, my dogs are going at it. They agree. Um, so <laughs> they're, they're fans of love. They're fans of love. They love love. Um, but it's really crazy that when he was immigrating to the U.S., he was on a ship and met this like lady he became really good friends with. And a couple of years later, when he was promoting his book, this artist named Emil J. Cosa invited him over for dinner, saying that his parents were very interested in India. Over the course of the evening, Cosa's mother was like, oh, you know, several years ago, I met a young Indian student who was going to study canning in the U.S. And he was like, there's nobody in the U.S. from India who's studying canning besides me. And then they realized that they were the friends on the same on the on the ship that he was oh coming over gosh. to when he was immigrating. Oh, what a small world. I know, right? I was like, in this case, it was like truly like star-crossed like meeting. Like you, you were fated to meet. <laughs> so he met her mother. So actually he met her too. Because at the time, oh, she was like a child, which... I didn't know what the age difference is, but he was like, I didn't realize it was her until like later. But it was really sweet because he was like, yeah, then I saw a performance by like Marion as part of her dance troupe. And he was like, and then I fell madly in love. And the only thing like, she was like, he was like, I had a lot of rivals then. And there was like no reasons why she should choose me. And the only thing I had going was that my future parent, mother and father-in-law liked me. That's really sweet. Anyways, going back to Sand, he was also known as the wild Indian around the area because <laughs> he had a real he would drive around really crazily in an old Ford. Around this time, he got more engaged in local politics and eventually founded the India Association of America, which actually worked really hard and got the Loose Seller Act of 1946 passed that made it possible for Indian immigrants and Filipinos to naturalize as American citizens. That is really important. That's that's huge. It was yeah, it was the first time in which people of Asian descent could naturalize into citizenship. And he had a big part in that. He did. He he really advocated for the Loose Seller Act, but it seems like it was only limited to the time for Filipinos um, and Indians, and it was a quota of 100 Filipinos and 100 Indians. 
per year per year in the United States. Right. But it really paved the way for future bills and acts that allowed for naturalization of Asian immigrants. Keep in mind though at this time it was actually more of a PR thing than actual anti-racism because 1946 they were in World War II. They wanted to、mm. be like everyone has the ability to make it in the US. <laughs> right. So He became an American citizen in 1949, so three years later, and he ran for election in 1950 in the Westmoreland Township of California for judge. He won that election, and、um, but then his election was thrown out because at the time of election he was a citizen for less than a year.、Mm. And did that disqualify him? Technically, no, but like the. There was like a lawsuit and things like that, and he was just like, "Okay." Oh, so he stepped down because people were being bigoted. Well, his his、um, political rival. I don't know. If, I w- I wouldn't say that bigotry isn't part of it, and it was like a technicality that I guess they kind of <laughs> overlooked when they put him on the ballot. But when he actually won, that was like the point that they were really driving at, and got him removed. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah, so that at least that's what my reading of my research of the research is. So, okay. Anyways, so he he ran for reelection. Like he basically、um, ran again later, and then won and became a judge in I believe nineteen fifty two. Yeah. So he had been a, a citizen at that time for a while. That way for three years, yeah, for for more than one year. So, like anything they said before, they're like, "You you won, but you couldn't be a judge." Was、um, and he was like, "Aha!、Uh-huh, well, I'm gonna win and be a judge." Yeah, JK JK JK. Like now, it's, <laughs> what what were you going to say again? But it was actually really sad because he did face a lot of racial discrimination, even though he's been in the community at the time for several years,、um, and he was a citizen. And he was a citizen,、um, but he had like during his、um, campaign, he even had friends that said they liked him as a person, but would never bring themselves to go to, for a Hindu judge. He was Sikh, not Hindu. Apparently, like he was out in public, and somebody accosted him, like somebody he knew, and was like, "Oh!" And they called him Doc because he has a PhD. <laughs> and so they're like, "Doc, tell us if you're elected, will you furnish?" The turbans, or will we have to buy them ourselves in order to come into your court? Someone asked him in the middle of a restaurant. Whoa, racist! I know, and he responded, "My friend, you know me as a tolerant man. I don't care what a man has on the top of his head. All I'm interested in is what he's got inside." Which is a great quip. Yeah, that is instead of just getting mad, <laughs> he said it diplomatically, put them in their place. Right. So actually, you know, in his memoir, he kind of puts himself、um, as a very mild-mannered man, and from all things that I can say, he like everything that I read. He was a very he was a man with good humor, and he was a very peaceful guy. Like he didn't like all his campaigns. He never ran a、um, negative ad against his opponents, even if they were being thrown his way, and he defended himself on the principles of what his beliefs. So he never spoke badly about his opponents. No, he never spoke badly about his opponents.、Um, and so on election day, Son won by thirteen votes. 
13. <gasps> wow. I know. So when people say my vote doesn't count, it does. <laughs> Literally 13 votes. Especially in local elections. Right. Yeah. Okay. So vote in your local election, guys and gals. So yeah, he voted. He won by 13 votes. And in 1955, he ran as the Democratic candidate for the U.S. Congress and uh, against Jacqueline Cochran. Cochran? Yeah. So what is crazy is that she is a badass in her own right. So she was the first woman to break the sound barrier in 1953. Wow. Like she worked uh, with Amelia Earhart to get a lot of women into aviation. And she also owned her own cosmetics line. So like she is also a very impressive woman um, in her own right. So they were both entrepreneurs. They were both entrepreneurs. They were both um, like if they had won, it would still have been like a really huge step in representation in either way. But um, Cochran was married to one of like the wealthiest people in California. She has personal friends with Eisenhower, who was the president at the time. Um, she was running as a Republican. But because of the background of these politicians, this was not unnoticed by the larger media. Like, what? This is a crazy matchup, right? And so here's some of the, some of the headlines from major news outlets during the day. So this is from New York Times. A, wood, a woman's smoldering hope and the success story of an East Indian immigrant are converging into what is likely to be one of the most colorful congressional contests of 1956. Wow. Bit of racism, this bit of sexism, it's all in yeah. there. <laughs> right? All they had to say was it was exotic and... <laughs> so the Los Angeles Times reported, seldom if ever... Has the American melting pot cooked up a spicier election dish than the contest now simmering in California's 29th congressional district? Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> but hey, at least it's not bland. <laughs> so, you know, during his entire campaign, his ethnicity, religion kept being used as a point of attack by his opponents. And even like the Associated Press reminded readers that San was a Sikh Hindu born in India and was dark-hued before saying that he's been in the U.S. for 36 years at that time. Oh my gosh. So let's do a little othering and then we'll talk about his qualifications. Right. Like we'll just other him a little bit, you know, and then we'll talk about his his successes. Sure. Why not? Ugh. What is actually really upsetting was that his opponent, um, Cochran, actually still believe that he was a card-toting communist. Also because he supported Gandhi and all of that. Like They were like, he's a communist. And that was a real big negative at the time, right? It was. Yeah, but um, he eventually won this race. It was super close. There was like 3,000 votes difference. And he worked a super grassroots campaign. And one of the things that said was like, she campaigned by air, but he went by went to doors. And and so she was accusing him of being a communist. Right. Which was a real negative thing at the time. And he was still running a campaign where he wouldn't speak badly about her. Is that correct? That is correct. He didn't post anything negative. As far as all the reading materials I could find said that he ran clean campaigns. That's That's impressive. And he still won. And he still won. Even though he, he was accused of being a communist. Right. But I don't know how much that stu stuck because 
remember when he started running, he was he was known as a judge, right? And he was mm-hmm. known in the local community as one of them, right? He was a farmer. He had his own, like, he he like went through the same things they did. They had a grasshopper infestation. He worked with like his community to come up with a way of getting rid of grasshoppers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think like part of it was really real. It was truly a grassroots campaign and like his wife, his family, his son-in-law, his daughter-in-law, like his, not daughter-in-law, his son-in-law and his daughter, like went door to door, like every, every like free time they can get. And one of my favorite thing was like a district farmer, apparently after his, um after his win, a district farmer told the culture magazine Coronet this is great. He's grown cotton. He's grown lettuce and beets. He's worked in hay and he's worked for wages. And he won't let any smart Alec lawyers trick him. That's why we sent him to Washington. <laughs> that's some serious support. I, I know. I was like, oh, that's like truly grassroots support, right? Mm-hmm. So, so actually, when he started going into, um, so when he went to Congress, he actually really wanted to be on the um, internal committees, like the committees to deal with agriculture, because he supported a huge agricultural community. And that's where his expertise was, right? Because he was a farmer. Right. Oh, okay. Actually, going back to, um, going back to kind of the, going back to the election, because there were some like really, really interesting things um, that they did. So apparently... Time magazine devoted like a full page article to the campaign and half of the like half of the page was devoted to his opponent and then half of it was to him and he was like no amount of money because again they were like not as cash heavy as his opponent could like bring that level of publicity and uh Sand actually even got the endorsement of JFK wow and and this is because everyone had their eyes on this particular race because it was a person of color versus a woman at a time when this was revolutionary. Right, right. And like, also she was like a very impressive woman and she, you know, was also an entrepreneur. She like wrote records, things like that. And so mm-hmm, actually mm-hmm. this is a very um, sweet thing that JFK wrote. He says, Judge Diazand has proved conclusively his understanding of and devotion to the basic meaning of our American ideals. After reading the moving story of his tireless and patient struggle to attain full citizenship rights for his countrymen and for himself, you will understand a measure of the love he bears for his America and for her people. We need this man's wisdom and loyalty in the Congress of the United States. The election of Judge D.S. Sand will promote international goodwill and greatly advance the cause of world peace. Oh, wow. That is quite it an endorsement. Is an endorsement. So his like pamphlet was amazing. Like he had a really lovely pamphlet and it's got like super cute old timey drawings. And um, he wrote that he was like super inspired by American sportsmanship. And he basically said something to the level of like, I rather lose 10 times and be considered a good sport than win 10 times and be considered a sore loser. Hmm. I think that uh, we could use a little bit more of that in today's podcast. Right? <laughs> right. Like we definitely need that. And uh, he, when he won, he sent like letters of congr- like of congratulations and reached out to um, his opponent, like telling that it was like a very difficult and well fought race, even though she was speaking, mm-hmm. you know, negatively about him, about where he was mm-hmm. coming from. So he was really a man of principle. He was. He was truly a man of principle. 
and had a lot of integrity. I pause a little bit because there seems to be some like different, different viewpoints about him in his agricultural career because Ah. Because there was definitely because he was definitely taken to court for bankruptcy or like for credits that he couldn't pay, but that was also kind of mm-hmm. the norm during that time because a lot of farmers couldn't pay right after the Great Depression. Right. And there was ah. other things that came up because it sounded like he told people that he'll pay them and that he never did. And like ah. <laughs> we're gonna gloss over that a little bit. <laughs> I see. Gotcha. But uh, but his heart is where good to bring that up though. Yes, because I mean even even our heroes it can be flawed. Well, it was just that I wasn't quite sure because I'm not I'm not I I couldn't understand what like the agricultural business part of this was. I did my research at mm-hmm. 10 p.m. last night. <laughs> Anyways, so but yeah, he also got really excited about the U.S. in general because he loved the word of Abraham Lincoln. And he was really inspired by uh, Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm. So like Lincoln and Gandhi were his heroes. I mean, you know, sorry, my, my dog is moving around. And, you okay, buddy? I have to take his blanket off of him. He's too hot. I think he's overheating. Yeah, I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Poor baby. Okay. All right. So yeah, so it was like, all in all, a very exciting campaign. Mm -hmm. But once he got to the Congress, he's got work to do, right? It was really interesting because he was almost like an international celebrity at this point. Like, people were Mm. like, oh my gosh, he is like the ideal of America. Like, truly, you can come from nothing and work your way to become an elected member of Congress, right? And Mm -hmm. um So even though like when he joined, he was like, I don't want to be on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I want to be on the interiors. I think he ended up serving on both. So he was appointed to the House Foreign Affairs Committee as a freshman congressperson. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. It is super impressive. It's like a very, very powerful committee. And it's like huge um, visibility, things like that. And he, as a result of being on that committee, he was, he took a tour around Asia in 1957. And it was during this tour, he um, really advocated for a better distribution of international aids. And he was like, hey, we need to make sure that it goes to the people. And he called the American government out on supporting dictators. And he was like, you don't, you don't win the hearts and minds of people by supporting dictators and corrupt rulers basically wow so he was really ahead of his time (laughs) he was he was very much ahead of his time um he was like in in all aspects he really was somebody who championed the rights of the people like he cared a lot for um the local individuals of his district and so he really advocated and did a lot of work to get water for southern california he looked at how land can be distributed and made it so like people can own land like he himself ran into this issue like because until he was a citizen he couldn't own land right So all of his land was actually leased under the name of his friend and sometimes his wife. So, um, and he was a champion for civil rights legislation. That's awesome. And he writes in his memoir, there is no room in the United States of America for second class citizenship. And he also uh, supported the 1957 civil rights bill. And he used his own story to advocate its passage 
pointing that even though being born in India did not prevent him from becoming a member of Congress, being born Black in Mississippi would have. Wow, that's powerful. Right. And I think that's like a huge testament to how, like, this is how allyship should work, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he writes, and I'm going to say, like, there is some of the words in here is more of the testament to their time. So I'm going to quote, this is what he writes. No amount of sophistry or legal argument can deny the fact that in 13 counties in one state in the United States of America in the year 1957, not one Negro is a registered voter. Let us remove those difficulties, my friend. So he recognized voter suppression in the U.S. and he like really advocated so that more people can vote. And yeah, so he really was a man ahead of his time. He won re-election in 1958 and 1960 by majorities of more than 60%. Wow. That's a big change from the 13 votes to the 3,000 votes to... <laughs> to Yeah, like, so he went from like 13 votes to winning 3,000 votes to like then just winning majorities. And he was on track probably to win his fourth campaign like his fourth fourth term but unfortunately his political career in congress was cut short when he suffered a severe stroke in 1962 though he eventually regained the ability to walk he never regained his power of speech and passed away in 1973 at the age of 73 yeah so that is like an incredible story an incredible journey and um he truly was somebody who loved the ideals of america Mm-hmm. And uh, and he embodied them, and he really fought for them too. Right, he really fought for what he felt is the ideals of America, the ideals of democracy. He was all about everyone having representation, which is really cool. Yeah, and his pamphlet, his um, promotional candidate pamphlet for his run, was titled "What America Means to Me." <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a wonderful story. It's too bad that he. Um, had a stroke and passed away so early because he probably could have been, I mean, with the influence that he had, he could have made an even bigger impact. Truly. Yeah. So in the, um, in some of the archives, they, they did mention like, it was such a shame that his, his political career was cut so short because he truly could have achieved really great things for equality, for civil um, for civil rights and like colleagues when he passed the house was in session but members held a memorial service and eulogized him as calling him a classic american success story a pioneer and a gentleman in the best sense of the word so that is his story and what a trailblazer and like i said how have we not learned about him in california state history yeah seriously that's fantastic so he became a, a congressperson in 1956. He said he represented Congress. Uh, he represented California in 1956. Yes. So yeah, that really isn't that long ago, and he was the first Asian American congressperson yeah. with full voting with rights. With full voting rights. So he was in Congress 1957 to 1963. Elected in 1956. Yeah. So it took from Robert Wilcox, who's the first AAPI in Congress as a delegate without voting rights in 1900 Mm -hmm. to 1956. Yeah. 57 years. And if we do the math, uh, 1963 plus seven, 
What's 1963 plus 57? It's 2020. So apparently 57 years is later, we have the first Asian American and Black woman elected into for the executive branch. Is 57 years the magic number? You hear, heard it here first. <laughs> I think that's too long. That is too long. <laughs> Let's shorten it, you know. But um, still, that's, I guess, that's all the stories. Shall we wrap it up? We should, we should wrap it yeah. up. But um, do you have anything happy you want to talk about before we end this? Mm-hmm. Well, in, my dog has uh, some dinosaur gammies <gasps> that are really cute. Oh, my God. So cute. Did you dress him up that for Halloween? Um, he just wears them every night. Because they're fleecy and warm. Oh my God. And he doesn't have, because um, he's a greyhound, he doesn't have an undercoat. Right. So he gets real cold. Okay. Can you send me pictures of that? Yes. I can do that. Yay. For my happy thing, I watched Over the Moon on Netflix. Have you mm. watched it yet? I haven't. Okay. I won't spoil it for you, but it is very sweet. It was a very sweet story. And there are like little bits in there in which, um, uh, I could see like the way that she was counting at one point really like uh, really reminded me of like how people who did mental math with um, an abacus would count. So it was like little, little things like that, um, that made me really happy. And it kind of harkens back to the, uh, the moon princess story you were telling us in the last episode, right? Yes. So it's actually a variation and based from the same legend as well. Very so, cool. If you have time, go back and listen to our previous episode about the legend of Chang'e. And it is in the latter half of the episode, um, but definitely listen to Avatar as you as you go. I'm actually read. It's story time. With Yay, Claire. story time. With Claire. <laughs> I was actually reading um, the legend of Kiyoshi, the the novels. And yes, it's, it's it's a really good read. I'm still like in the beginnings of it. So yeah, that was that was my happy thing. I watched. Over the moon, the music was really catchy. Um, it was a really great. Um, it was really great to see Asian representation all around. Mm-hmm. And uh, but my husband was just like, "I still don't see the bunny in the moon." <laughs> so he was like, "It had one job, one job," and I'm like, "No, it had <laughs> many jobs." But sure, bunny in the moon. <laughs> Anyways, all right. Shall we? Shall we sign off? I think so. All right. So thanks, everyone, for coming to this little meeting. Please follow us on social media. We are on Facebook as YRFC Podcast, Twitter as YRFC Podcast, and Instagram as Yellow Ranger Fan Club. Email us your thoughts and feelings at yellowrangerfanclub at gmail.com and check out some of our writings and articles and notes on yellowrangerfanclub.com. Yeah, we, we usually put up um, bibliographies of our research. Yeah, yeah. We have our awesome bibliography. Mari cites really great things in there. I occasionally <laughs> remember to actually cite my stuff in appropriate citation format. <laughs> but most of the things will be in there and there will be links. Um, anyways, rate and subscribe so you can keep up to date with us. We'll let you know about new episodes before we tell our moms. So thanks for hanging out. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, and uh, remember to wash your hands and wear a mask because the pandemic isn't over nine months in. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't have to remind people to vote. It's true. We don't need to remind people to vote anymore. But 
there's still a lot of work to do. So get engaged in local politics. Yes. Although there is, it sounds like there's a runoff in Georgia. So if you're in Georgia, don't forget to vote in that. What she said. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye. Catch you guys next time. Bye.